0: Today we are focused on St. Francis of Assisi, uh, a bigger-than-life and well-loved 13th-century figure who was a beggar and uh, a preacher and uh, as such remains famous 800 years later. Indeed, some would say he is uh, one of the most famous people out of the Middle Ages and one of the most famous of all the Catholic saints. Uh, St. Francis founded the Franciscans one of the mendicant orders of the Catholic Church mendicant means that this is one of the um, this, that those joining this order and this is a different kind of sort of monastic movement you had you had one monastic movement you'll remember where people, uh, we're going to go live by themselves, be very uh, solitary out in the desert or whatever. You had another monastic movement in which there were groups of people that were sort of going to be together to pursue God together. This is a third kind of a monastic order, and these are people who uh, were going to live very simple, taking vows of poverty and humility, but they were going to live among uh, regular people. So. Uh, St. Francis is famous for, quote, marrying lady poverty. Uh, So um, the Franciscans, uh, by the way, is the branch of the Catholic Church from which the current Pope, Pope Francis, uh, is a member. He is the first Franciscan to become the Bishop of Rome. Uh, St. Francis is not only known as the founder of the Franciscans, he is also known as the patron saint of many things. He is the patron saint of Italy. He's the patron saint of animals, especially of birds and of wolves. He's the patron saint of merchants, of needleworkers, of peace, of ecology. He's the patron saint against dying alone. He's the patron saint against fire. And he is the patron saint. For families, Uh, as you may have picked up just from um, where you see him quoted or, or other allusions to him, he is celebrated by poets, environmentalists, 60s beatniks, assorted humanitarians, devout Catholics, some atheists, some Muslims, and others. He is recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church. He is also recognized as a saint by the Orthodox Church by the Lutheran Church and the Anglican Church. If you happen to have, or maybe you don't have, but you have seen a statue in somebody's garden, often next to a birdbath, you see this solitary figure standing there. Maybe it looks like a monk. Technically, they're not monks. Uh, those who join the mendicant orders, they're the Dominicans, uh, the, the Franciscans, there's a couple others, they're called friars. But, um, but uh, if you see this statue uh, next to a bird bath, that is St. Francis out in your garden. Um, if you've heard of church services where you can take your pets, your dog, your cat, whatever, a bird, uh, and have them blessed by the priest, that's all being tied back to St. Francis. Much has been written about him, he is uh, a very influential and colorful figure. Uh, in today's podcast, we're going to walk through and look at his life. And my guess is that part of what you're going to learn about St. Francis is that uh, the few things that you knew about him are not actually true. For starters, there is the famous prayer attributed to him. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. So this is a wonderful prayer, and it does capture uh, the personality and sort of the the vibe of St. Francis. But (laughs) this is a prayer that was uh, written in 1925 in Chicago. It was not written by St. Francis. Additionally, another thing that often is attributed to St. Francis is the line, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. So uh, this actually, I, I mean, I get that people like this. There's, a, there's an appeal to this. There's this idea that, you know, be loving and gracious and kind and caring and other centered and humble. Uh, and so I, I, I mean, I think we ought to lean into that and like that. But this is not something Francis would have said. He didn't say it and he wouldn't say it. Uh, he starts this order of the Franciscans. They're preachers. So this idea that he would have this statement in which, you know, preach the gospel uh, and, and when necessary use words would not be something he would say. And, and as a just on the on the, the margins, let me say, I don't think this statement makes sense. Again, I get the attraction of it, but the gospel, the, uh, the good news right? That's what gospel means. The good news is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's it's the message about God sending his son uh, as a savior of the world. It's news. I, I emphasize this often to say it's not insight. It's something that you do have to be told. Now, there's a debate that goes on uh, in theological circles over whether or not the gospel uh, itself uh, demands this call to care for the poor and social justice and other things. Or is it just the statement about God sending his son? Uh, I, I find this debate a little uh, wearisome. Uh, I would be inclined if you you know held my feet to the fire to say i think that the gospel in its purest simplest form is is the message about christ uh becoming god becoming man and living among us and dying for us uh and that we 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 are reconciled with god through the shed blood of christ and receiving him however uh you cannot follow, you cannot embrace the gospel without embracing Jesus and his teaching and his example and being led to, to care for those that others are not caring for. Right? All, this just goes together, it's hand in glove. And so, uh, anyway, that, that's a little bit of an aside. I'm getting ahead of myself. Look, what you're going to see when we look at St. Francis uh, is that he can seem a little um, unbalanced at times, uh, he is he is very zealous about uh, about taking the the comments that Jesus makes to their extreme, and uh, and so he can he can rattle us when we when we look at what he says, but um, I think that he is a he is a, a person to be studied, and there's a lot about Saint Francis that I really like, and I think we need to embrace. So. Um, but as I said, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want to do today is set the context, as always, because I'm, again, part of the whole idea of doing a hundred of these lectures is that you can see where you fit. You can sort of see uh, your history. Uh, we get to where we get. We live in the moment and we live sort of informed by everything that comes before us. And many people don't understand sort of the ebb and flow of the previous uh, a few thousand years and so we're looking at the that these hundred events and I want to keep going back over those uh, a second reason the second thing that we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna look at at uh, his life we're gonna look at st. Francis's life and then I'm gonna make some comments about him and again uh, I think you're gonna discover that part of what happens to st. Francis is really what ha- what happens to Jesus uh, he's so popular everybody likes him nobody really says bad things about him uh, and they claim him but as a as a result of claiming him they they end up making him say or they ascribe to him things that he didn't do certainly this is this is radically true with Jesus I've seen Jesus who is the you know, it was claimed by the socialists, claimed by uh, liberals, claimed by conservatives, claimed by every every different group, uh, because what you, you could do, you know, you can't do a lot better than to have Jesus as a spokesman for your group, but but people end up making Jesus, and to some extent, they end up making Saint Francis uh, look and think like they do. He tends to be a little bit more radical than uh, than all of that. So. Uh, he's a complex guy, um, but he does zealously try and embrace the Sermon on the Mount and live it out. Some would say nobody does it more zealously than does St. Francis. So by way of context, we are still in the Middle Ages. We are, uh, St. Francis is going to be born in the early 13th century, so uh so, He's going to be born. He's going to live in the early 13th century. He's going to be born in the late 12th century, so 1181 or 1182. So, by way of context, the Great Schism between the between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church takes place in 1054. The First Crusade takes place in 1095. Uh, The first university is founded. Uh, in you know, in the 1100s, 1232 is when the first inquisitor is going to be commissioned, uh, appointed by the church. And so uh, it's in that context that we have uh, St. Francis living his life. The church is in some sense of uh, decline at this moment. There's a lot of corruption. And so as with the other monastic orders... This is sort of a purifying movement that St. That Francis is going to lead. Um, so, with that said, um, let me start with a few things about his birth and early life. He's born 1181, 1182. As I said, we don't, we're don't we not sure. He's born in Italy. CC is in Italy. Uh, his parents are wealthy. His dad is a cloth merchant. Uh, Pietro Bernadino. Pietro Bernardone. Uh, He was away when Francis was was born. He was away on business in France. Uh, When he gets back, he learns that his wife has had a son uh, and that she has had him baptized with the name Giovanni, John. So, uh, so... Francis's dad is not happy. He does John is a is is a church name. It's sort of it's it's a name you know going back to the apostle John or John the Baptist. He this is not his plan for his son. He wants his son to follow him in the path of business. This is a a time when uh, feudalism is starting to break down, and so uh, Francis's dad is one of the first of these. Uh, of these people who are who are uh, merchants they're taking advantage of capital they're buying and selling they're making profits and he's gaining a lot of money and a lot of influence he's starting to to come up and to rival uh, the the lords and the barons and so he wants, he wants good things for his son. He wants an education. He wants, he wants uh, money. He wants power. He wants uh, acceptance into higher society. And so he, he has him renamed Francesco, uh, which is France. He's naming him after France, which is where he's doing a lot of his business. France is sort of the power center at the, at the moment. And so this is not a common name. Uh, it's a little bit new to name your son, uh, you know, after France. And France, it's a very sophisticated name. And so um, uh, St. Francis, who is going to be this, this simple, humble beggar, is sort of, you know, he's born uh, to, a, to a dad who's sort of a, you know, a fashion plate, uh, you know, an Armani or somebody like that. So, um, and he grows up. Francis grows up with this vibe with a lot of money and he grows up very spoiled um he likes to to play hard he likes to party hard one of his uh, biographers Thomas of Solano uh says he squanders he squandered his time terribly indeed he outshone all his friends in trivialities Uh, another person wrote that he was a uh, he had the ability to attract to himself a whole retinue of young people addicted to evil and accustomed to vice. Francis himself will say that uh, his early years were lives uh, of sin. In 1202, things begin to change. Uh, he is he is drawn to the Arthurian legend, so King Arthur. Uh, the, this legend about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and being noble and chivalry, and all this stuff. So he decides, Francis decides, he wants to be a knight, and uh, he he doesn't become one, but he acts like one for a little bit, and uh, he goes off to battle uh, when his town is going, Assisi is going uh, to do battle against uh, another local city, uh, Perugia. And he goes off to battle with a bunch of his friends, uh, full of dreams of military glory. And the battle goes poorly. Many of his friends are killed. Uh, he, because his dad is wealthy, is considered um, uh, somebody to keep alive so that you can um, you can hold him for ransom. Uh, whether or not his dad had trouble raising the ransom money, or whether he's just they're starting to have a falling out, it's unclear. But Uh, Francis is going to spend a year in this dungeon in um, Perugia. And during that year, uh, different stories are told, but what we know for certain is that he gets out, when he he gets out, when the ransom is finally paid, he's quite sick. And he will spend a year recovering from whatever he had picked up in the dungeon. But uh, he doesn't appear to have changed much. So as he gets his health back, he goes back uh, to partying. And then he has an opportunity to join the Fourth Crusade. So now he has his dad buy him armor, very elaborate, uh, sort of gold-plated armor. And he sets out to go to fight uh, with the crusaders. He goes one day out. (laughs) He's got two of his friends with him. He goes one day out, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he hears God tell him, no, this is not right. Go back. So uh, he gives away his armor and he heads, he heads home, at which point, of course, he's considered uh, a coward. Um, but things are beginning to happen inside of Francis. So then you get a lot of stories about uh, how he sort of undergoes this conversion from this, you know, living large, the Armani uh, heir Uh, you know dashing I'm gonna I'm gonna you know go fight in battles and I'm gonna you know buy lots of nice clothes and nice wine and other things he begins to change one of the things that's famously told is that he sees a leper and he's repulsed by the leper he's repulsed by his look and leprosy at this point is not just Hansen's disease which we think of it today uh, it was sort of anyone who had any kind of significant uh, disease, deformity, infection, whatever. But he, um, he's repulsed by this leper and his smell and his appearance. But he feels like he needs to love him. So he gets off of his horse and he goes over and he embraces the leper. Now, we know that leprosy is not contagious. They didn't know that. He embraces the leper and he kisses his hand. He's overcome with joy. Uh, Another thing. So now he starts to to contemplate God. He starts to pray. Again, he's still recovering. Uh, He's sitting one day in a little chapel, dilapidated chapel, and he is uh, praying, and he has a vision of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, speaking to him. And three times it tells him that he is supposed to, uh, uh, he's supposed to repair the church, that the church is dilapidated, it's falling down. He's supposed to repair the church. Now, he takes this quite literally at the time. Later on, some of his followers will say this was not just about this particular uh, little chapel, that this is a call to repair the church, right? The church has got corruption, the church has got issues, and he's supposed to help purify the church. But he's going to understand this to mean that he's supposed to repair the church. So he goes to his father's place of business, his father is gone, and he takes a lot of the inventory, a lot of the cloth, and um, so especially the red cloth. That was what was really expensive. Uh, Being able to dye the cloth the bright red was was complicated and so he takes this this bright red cloth and uh, and puts it on the horse and he goes into town and he sells it and then he sells the horse and he comes back with the money and he gives all the money to the priest to fix up the church. Uh, the priest is a little bit uh, confused about this again. Um, uh, Saint Francis is a complicated, well-known-about-town. The ri- you know the son of the rich guy. He doesn't quite know what to do. Francis signs, pledges himself. He goes, "I will, I will fix up the church. I'm going to work. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work and fix up the church myself." And so the the priest accepts this. When his dad gets back from business, he's wondering, "Where's you know, where's his inventory, uh, and where's the horse?" And uh, when he finds out that Francis has uh, sold this, he's furious. So he goes, um, uh, he goes after Francis. Francis hears he's coming, so he runs and he hides, and he lives in a cave for a month uh, and doesn't appear to have a whole lot of food. When he, he comes out after a month, hoping that his father has uh, sort of calmed down, goes home. But he's now his clothes are tatters, he's lost weight, and uh, he's an embarrassment to his father. He's, st- he's stolen this, this property. He's giving things away. He's dressing poorly. Uh, he's starting to ask people for handouts. His father's scandalized. His, his father has him um, chained up in their home, puts him in a cell. You can see this cell. If you go to visit um, the, the family home, you can see where uh, Francis was chained up by his father. And he's there for weeks. And, and his father goes away on business. His father is, is trying to convince him that this this the path he's heading down is the wrong path. Francis won't change. You know He's, he's headstrong. He's not going to go back. So his father goes away on business. His mother lets him, uh, unchange him. And he runs back to uh, the priest to, uh, to keep working on the church. His father comes back and uh, has him arrested. And this is, you know, oh my goodness, this is just, you know, domestic conflict that is becoming uh, more complicated. But the, the, they have him taken to the bishop. And the bishop says to Francis, because um, the father's pleading, look, you know, he's giving all this stuff away, he's stealing from me, you know, whatever. The bishop turns to Francis, who he knows has been working at this church. And he says, look, you know, you need to give your dad what's, what belongs to your dad. So famously, Francis takes off his father's clothes, all his clothes, strips naked, hands all his clothes to his dad, and he says, uh, I I renounce you as my dad. Today you are no longer my dad. Now I can finally pray on uh, my father who art in heaven. His father is horrified, marches away. We don't know whether they ever reconcile, um, but we know that from that point then Francis goes and he uh, becomes a hermit. Becomes a sort of embraces the life of of a hermit, but he doesn't he doesn't actually go away. That would probably have been better for his father if if Francis had sort of disappeared. He stays in town, living in rags, begging, and uh, you know trying to to becoming a preacher and calling people to repent, and um, and so this is scandalous to his dad. So. as, as he does this, he begins over time to pick up followers, um, and they are, they are signing on to his life. Now, again, Francis is more uh, of, a, of an outlier. He's a little bit more um, rigorously, zealously religious than, than most people today. And again, lots of people esteem St. Francis, atheists, atheists. Uh, you know, there, in the hippie movement, there was a lot of people that loved St. Francis. This simple life close to the earth, uh, caring and loving others, uh, the ecologists, uh, veterinarians and others who love animals, they, they, they affirm all this stuff about Francis. So Francis, in the winter, was known to plunge himself into cold water uh, and staying there Trying to purge himself of all fleshly temptation, um, he would not look at women. He would he would either look at the sky or he would look at the ground. Um, he did not. He was not beholden. He was supposedly full of joy, but he didn't like laughter. Um, he he didn't like that kind of uh, frivolity. He he considered that a little bit beneath him. So he's a, he's he's an eccentric, but. Um, but he is loving and caring for people and he is he develops followers uh he starts to pick up followers so when he has 12 um he then heads to rome in order to get permission to start this uh, franciscan order and to most people's surprise he actually eventually gets an audience with the pope and although the pope says no initially the pope has a dream that no this is an order he's supposed to embrace and so he he sets it up francis will actually start three orders he'll start the the order of brothers of friars who are going to take these vows of poverty and and are going to travel around uh preaching Uh, calling people to repentance. He starts an order for women. There's a a rich woman, a young woman in uh, Assisi named Claire, and she, among other women, are drawn to the same kind of vows of poverty and simplicity and uh, just caring for others, um, sort of Mother Teresa-like. And so uh, he will start this order of of the poor Claire's, so, um, you know, give all their money away, the poor clares, And then there's gonna be a third order that it will get started for, um, for people who are not going to become friars. They're going to marry, uh, but they're gonna also try and follow the, the rule of St. Francis. So he's gonna develop, just like St. Benedict, developed the rule, the sort of the monastic rule that you would follow if you entered a Benedictine monastery. He's going to develop a rule for this kind of simple living in poverty. So the Franciscans get started in 1221. Um, Excuse me, that's when the the lay order gets started in 1221. So then the other thing that is sort of noteworthy about St. Francis is that he's got a little bit of a wanderlust about him. So he's going to travel all over, uh, wander about Italy. Again, you have no property Right, so there's no place to call home at this point. So you're just traveling around, depending upon other people to 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 give you food. You would work. If you couldn't find work, you you might beg. But you were traveling around, preaching uh, the gospel, calling people to repentance. And you just would go from town to town. So he goes around Italy. He's going to cross the Mediterranean. He's going to uh, go down into Egypt. He's going to cross the enemy lines because the Crusades are going on. And he's going to he's going to talk to the Sultan, uh, challenge the Sultan to follow Christ. The Sultan is not going to, but he's going to be quite taken by uh, by by Saint Francis in his his life. Um, and so he travels around as do his orders. The order of Franciscans is going to grow quite rapidly, even during Francis's life. So they're going to end up traveling all over um, France, Spain, Germany, England, Hungary, and Turkey. And again, the, the message is uh, repent, right, turn, uh, follow Christ. And this is a radical call to follow Christ's life, to be like Jesus as much as you can to give away all your property, to live simply, to care for the poor. Um, so it is, a, it is a call to repent and to radically and zealously follow the teachings of Jesus. Um, perhaps one of the reasons that this is so uh, attractive, again, is because the church at this point is gaining money and power and, and this is leading to corruption. And so this kind of simple uh, message Uh, leads to a bit of a revival in Europe. But with the growth of of the Franciscans uh, comes complication and comes conflict within the order, and Francis doesn't like any of this. Uh, as, As the order grows, it acquires money and power, right? As much as you can give things away, people are giving things to you, and there are some within the order that think they ought to keep it. There's others that think they shouldn't. And and there's tension. Francis eventually says, I, I'm out. Uh, I can't lead this anymore. And so he turns the leadership over to other people and sort of uh, withdraws from society. Uh, he's going to spend those times... Um, um, uh, in contemplation and in prayer he will start the living uh, the living nativity scenes that are going to spread throughout Europe because again he's big into animals he's there's a famous time where uh, he preaches to the birds there's a and the birds listen there's another time when uh, he 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 speaks to a wolf that is terrorizing the town and uh, the people are, the villagers are going to kill the wolf and he goes and meets with the wolf uh, and persuades the wolf not to attack the people. And the people are then going to feed the wolf from that point on. Again, he's, he's got this kind of a vibe to him. So he, he likes animals, so he's got these living nativities with the animals involved, and he wants to show the simplicity and poverty into which Jesus was born. Uh, he's going to write some things. He's famous for some poems um, that, that he is going to write. Towards the end of his life, he, um, in, so in the 1220s, he's going to die at the age of 44 in poor health. Uh, he's mostly blind by this point. Uh, again, he's lived a life of, of, of poverty. He's lived a life of fasting. Uh, and so he's got some health issues. Uh, but he is going to, he's on a mountain retreat when he, uh, tradition would say he develops the stigmata. Uh, so he has the five wounds of Christ. He's supposedly the first saint for which this is true. So the the hands and the feet uh, and the sides start to bleed and he's mirroring the images of Jesus. Um, he's gonna write uh, famously write a, a poem canticle of brother son which can can seem a little pantheistic if you if you're not careful. It's not that it actually is a celebration of, of the creator, not just of creation. But um, he's going to praise Brother Sun and Sister Moon and Brother Wind and Brother Fire and Sister Mother Earth. And again, so you can see why um, the ecology and a lot of pantheists, other religions, will really um, grasp on to uh, St. Francis. So he dies on October 3rd, 1226. Um, he's at the age of 44. Shortly before his death, he asks to be stripped naked, so that he has nothing uh, at the time that he leaves. And then with, uh, within two years of his death, uh, he will, which in the Roman Catholic Church, medieval era especially, this is like you know 30 minutes, he is um, elevated uh, and canonized as a saint. And, uh, and the movement will then continue to grow uh, and continue, the Franciscan movement will continue to grow and prosper. And um, again, it will become quite wealthy. And there is now a, a very stunning basilica um, built in Assisi and St. Francis's relics. Basilicas, remember, they, they're going to have relics. They're going to have bones. They're going to have the body of somebody there. So Basilica of St. Francis. And it shows some of the, you know, the, the money that the movement picks up. Well, so what are we to make of St. Francis? Um, as a Protestant, uh, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the kind of adulation uh, and attention given to saints, especially when people are praying to saints. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Jesus is our high priest. I don't understand uh, why I wouldn't pray to the Father and pray. Uh, to the to the Son and pray to the Spirit or in the Spirit. So, uh, I get I get nervous about some of this stuff. Um, however, I, I do think that Protestants um, react in some unhelpful ways to the saints, and in particular, I think we see this uh, uh, we see this with Mary. So because. Uh, of the of the uh, veneration or the elevation of Mary, uh, and and all of these uh, uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, statements that will be made about Mary, beliefs that will that will come about later about Mary. So her um, immaculate conception. The immaculate conception. Some people think refers to Jesus. No, that's it's the virgin conception. The immaculate conception refers to the idea that Mary is born without sin. Uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, the uh, the ascension into heaven without death of Mary. Some of these things that that the Catholic Church would affirm. Uh, I, I don't think those things are are true uh, but like um, realized like many Protestants consequently nervous about appearing to head down that path sort of ignore Mary and Mary is I mean how can you ignore Mary she's the one selected by God the Father she is she is chosen by God to be the mother uh, of of his son. And her magnificat and her her life is one of, the, from which we can learn a lot. Her example is profound. And in a similar way, some of these saints are people that we really ought to sort of sit up and pay attention to. And they do some remarkable things. And their zeal for Christ, their love for Christ, their commitment to embrace the teachings of Christ, while maybe not something we're going to take at the, at the same way that they do are certainly things that call us forward. So um, I think there are things to learn from uh, Francis, uh, ways to be challenged by his life, by his commitment, by his care for the poor, by his uh, by his just decision to really say, you know, when in doubt, I'm going to lean in. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to embrace the the most literal understanding of what I'm being called to. So uh, I'm going to end uh, our time um, by circling back to the prayer, which again is not a prayer that Saint Francis wrote, but I think it does capture a lot of the the spirit of Saint Francis, and there is certainly something here for us. So Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, In the next podcast, the plan is to look at the Christian origins of human rights that emerge in the 12th century. See you then.